Welcome to Embargo, the podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I am here on this sunny Monday morning, as always, with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Mr. Timothy O'Toole. What is up, Tim? What's up, Brian? Happy spring. Happy spring. It is uh, indeed spring. Um, Sun is out. Hope is in the air. Vaccines are being um, administered uh, more rapidly than they have been. Uh, we are we are looking we are cautiously optimistic that the next few months are going to be bringing good things. So we could be back um, to a real world again. Perhaps, perhaps. Um, although we're going to talk about a few things today that might suggest uh, we we may still be business as usual for a little while longer. Um, welcome everybody. Thank you for joining us uh, on the latest episode of Embargoed. Thanks to all who um, who listened to the last episode, and thanks as always for the comments and feedback. We appreciate it. Um, as always, uh, just to start out with, we are not here giving legal advice. We are not here discussing confidential information. Uh, any and all opinions that you hear today are solely those of mine. Of those are my opinions and Tim's opinions. They're nobody else's. If you don't like what we have to say, blame us. Uh, don't blame anybody else. Uh, and of course, if you enjoy the pod, please uh, subscribe. Please spread the word. Please give us a rating if you uh, if you are on Apple, Spotify, wherever you, uh, YouTube, wherever you get your pod content. Please uh, give us a rating. Spread the word. Uh, we do appreciate it. Uh, we do appreciate hearing from folks with topic ideas and feedback and. Um, any notes that you care to share, um, always keep those always cards and letters coming. Exactly. Exactly. Our, our mail room is the embargoed mail room is furiously working through them. Um, so, uh, we want to keep them busy. Um, so I, I think we're gonna, um, we're gonna get right down to it today. Uh, so let me give a little bit of the roadmap, uh, with respect to what we're going to cover. Um, even though last episode we stayed largely China free this, this week, we revert to form. We're going to cover a couple of big China topics. Not surprisingly, we're going to start with, uh, the recent decision from the district court in DC relating to Xiaomi's challenge to its, uh, CCMC designation and its uh, victory there in terms of obtaining a preliminary injunction. I think that's, uh, a pretty big deal. We're going to talk about that. Uh, we're then going to pivot to, uh, we're going to start by talking just about the recent um, wave of Hong Kong related designations that were announced just last week. But really, that's just an excuse and a precursor to talk about the, I think, testy initial bilateral uh, meeting between the U.S. and China that, occur that occurred in Alaska last week. And it was not we very diplomatic, Eddie. It was not very diplomatic. There was a lot of there were a lot of accusations about breaches of protocol and all kinds of fun stuff like that for, for diplomatic nerds out there that that's, it's about as, you know, that's like coming to blows essentially. This was really, exactly. things were, things were getting heated. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about some takeaways there and what, what that might um, foretell for the coming months and perhaps years with respect to China and U S China relations and U S China uh, trade uh, issues and, and what we might see there. 
we're then gonna uh, we're then gonna pivot. We're gonna go to the Southern District of New York, where there was a um, a sentencing. It's sort of an interesting sentencing outcome just from last week that related to some conduct uh, in a. It's not technically a Venezuela sanctions case, although because it's a kingpin, kin, it was kingpin act um, violations that were at issue. But an individual who was sentenced um, in connection with that and the underlying conduct related to a number of Venezuelan government officials. So that's uh, something that we want to touch on briefly. And then we're going to um, come back to the recently released um, uh, the declassified summary from the uh, uh, DNI and then the DOJ DHS report relating to 2020 election interference and who was and was not responsible for that, uh, I, which I think has some broader implications that we're going to get into. And then in the lightning round, we're going to talk about one of our favorite topics, Nord Stream 2, uh, which is back in the news a little bit uh, after some developments last week. And then finally, some additional measures that we've now seen come down from the Commerce Department relating to the situation in Burma following the military coup there. Uh, and that'll be our program for today. So before we get get off and running, Tim, any any thoughts before we jump in? No, lots of different stuff on the agenda. I think a lot of it is stuff that we talked about before, but I think it's kind of we're now getting to see some of our predictions, how they're playing out in the Biden administration. And, you know, we'll talk, I guess, during the, 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 the main portion of this about which ones have come true and which ones maybe haven't. Yeah, I think we're now that we're 60 plus days in today, we're recording this on March 22nd. Now that we're just over 60 days in, I think we're finally getting to see some of the fruits of our uh, prognostications kind of uh, being either proven or disproven. And and so uh, that's kind of a fun thing to check in on on various uh, these various issues, many of which, as Tim said, we've talked about before. And, and that's a good segue into topic number one, which is uh, Xiaomi's lawsuit, um, which we touched upon when it was first um, or shortly after it was first filed. And recall that uh, Xiaomi was a part of the final tranche, tranche five, that DOD identified as a communist Chinese military company just uh, literally hours before the Trump administration left town uh, in mid-January. And there was uh, a lawsuit filed seeking to preliminary, preliminarily enjoin uh, the effect of that because, of course, that ties into um, the uh, other executive order relating to publicly traded securities and the 60-day window that goes along with that to uh, for U.S. persons to basically um, to stop holding uh, any of those or purchasing any of those securities or dealing in those securities. Um, and so we knew that the clock was really ticking on Xiaomi and they ran to court to try to take some quick action on that. Um, and as we, we kind of did a quick rundown of initially about what the suit was, it was basically a pretty traditional APA challenge claiming that um, the agency's action in putting them on this CCMC list was arbitrary and capricious and that it was not well-founded in the record. So uh, we now have an opinion there because the 60-day um, clock was going to run as of last week. And so just over a week ago, we got an opinion. And this is... Uh, a pretty this is an eye opener i would say i think we i think we would have given the comments we made i think we 
we definitely thought there was a chance that they could prevail because as Tim and I have discussed at length, we're not aware of any actual process that that is is being undertaken or had been undertaken by DOD to determine which of these companies would constitute um, CCMCs under Section 1237 of the 1999 NDAA. Of course, that mandate to identify those companies sat dormant for 20 years. It wasn't until last June that we get the first set of companies that were identified. And so to now claim that after 20 years of abdicating this responsibility, there's a national security, you know, justification uh, that warrants kind of willy-nilly putting companies on this list is is going to be I think a tough sell for to a to a court and, and essentially that and that was a point that was brought up in the opinion and I think was a point that works pretty strongly against the government here so just to very quickly summarize what we saw basically the court found on three essentially three interrelated bases that there was an inadequate um, basis for the action that agency took. There was no satisfactory explanation. They acted in excess of the authority granted to them by Section 1237 of the NDAA, and there was no uh, substantial evidentiary showing for the listing. That was sort of, and, and all of those things tie to, again, the APA arbitrary and capricious standard, which is the traditional administrative law standard that you have to, for an agency defending its actions and and for it to be accorded deference and so the court found across all three of those that it had not been met and in fact they called out there was a dod paper um or a um a declaration that was attached that sort of included the decisional basis for this and really what it boiled down to and what the court latched onto were two different data points that were identified in this in this paper, one of which related to uh, a recognition or an award that the founder and CEO of Xiaomi had received um, that they claimed ties to or proves that he and the company have some role in civil military fusion. And the other is the company's stated goal of investing more heavily in the next five years in 5G and AI technology. And that those are fundamental technologies relating to military uh, development and therefore those two things together are enough that that's really the only substantive basis now i would say and what i was a little surprised by is oftentimes when it comes to these types of designations there might be a a classified basis that is relied upon or some classified reporting or, or something else there was no mention of that whatsoever it was just these two data points basically and there are two data points moreover that were taken from the annual report of Xiaomi from 2019. So I think by any standards, this is pretty thin. And I think we were we were suspecting that it might be pretty thin. And in fact, it was pretty thin and the court was not impressed. <laughs> and and the court pretty, I, I, would, I wouldn't say um, evisceration is probably too strong a term for the government's position, but it was, it was, it was, it was, Un, it was unhappy and displeased with, I think, the um, the arguments that the government was able to muster here. And, you know, look, in fairness, this is the now Biden era Justice Department that's defending actions of the Trump era DOD. Uh, you know, that's an that's always an awkward position. And I think this is this has been borne out here. And in fact, on the latest status report, it's sort of unclear 
whether they're going to continue to defend on this or maybe they will they may just remove Xiaomi from the list. It's it's unclear. There's an OFAC general. There's an OFAC FAQ that now makes clear that the one three nine five nine does not apply to Xiaomi as long as the court order is in place. So um, so there's a lot here. This is for the moment a pretty resounding victory for Xiaomi and for other companies who might feel that they were unfairly placed on the DoD list. So Tim, let me throw to you. What are your what are your reactions to all this? What do we what do we take away from this? So the DOD process was as sad as we expected it to be. I mean, it really was kind of pathetic to read this opinion because it seems like, you know, what we thought, given the 20 year lag in putting companies on the list and the lack of any stated process for determining who should go on the list was that there wasn't a lot of process here. But I, I think if anything, it was worse than we would have expected because it doesn't seem like there was any real justification done until the lawsuit. Um, and that was a you know, a decisional memo that was put together to try and justify putting a company on the list that, you know, when you see Judge Contreras describe it, I mean, it looks like they basically went to the website, found a couple of facts, put them into a two-page memo, and kind of just, you know, wiped their hands and said, see, that's enough. Um, and so it wasn't surprising how the court case came out in the sense that, I mean, it seems like there was a you know, exceedingly thin justification for a, a pretty serious consequence, especially when there really was no process that was gone through to to create that serious consequence. Um, we'd been talking about this, you know, from the time that the executive order came out and really even before then when these lists started coming out is that, you know, the the, the time lag combined with, you know, the fact that the list couldn't even state the company names correctly um, suggested that there was not a whole lot of thought being put into these. And so I think that's borne out by the, the um, Xiaomi decision. The, the question really in my mind is how many other companies are going to bring challenges like these. And I think Xiaomi was a very good test case for this because they had it from the decision. And I mean, the court found that they, they there really was a strong argument that they were not, um, you know, owned or controlled by the Chinese military. And that was part of the court's decision is really kind of wrestling with the language in, in um, 1237 of the NDAA about what it was that you actually had to be to go onto this list. I query how many other companies, Chinese companies out there would have had as strong arguments as Xiaomi appeared to have. I don't, I haven't really taken a look at the list and tried to figure it out, but I'm guessing that the first case that was brought was probably the strongest one and the other ones will be less. And from a, from a process standpoint, everybody has the same argument. From a facts standpoint, I think Xiaomi might've been the, the best case here. I, and again, maybe there are others, but I'm guessing some of the cases are going to have a lot harder time showing that despite the lack of process, process that DOD got it completely wrong because they have no real um, affiliation with the Chinese military. Yeah, I mean, I think that the there is quite a, a pretty lengthy discussion about what is the appropriate definition of affiliation? What does it mean to be affiliated? And the court here rejected the government's uh, proffered reading of that because they said, look, this would be overly broad and it would essentially bring in just about any Chinese company and the plaintiff's uh, definition was much more in line and somewhat restricted to a more traditional kind of corporate affiliate definition uh, under the same umbrella, you know, kind of common owner ownership type of 
um, definition. And so, um, yeah, I agree. I, and this is something we've been talking about all along, which is, is this, even, even if the process is essentially next to nothing, which it appears it was, um, you, you know, this isn't, this isn't rocket science. They, they likely, they likely have chosen companies for the most part that probably do meet the definition probably in most cases or and of course there are many of these companies at least in the early tranches were companies that are already on the entity list or you know had had sort of been singled out and identified by other parts of the u.s government for other reasons and so they can kind of just build upon that or sort of work on the on the back of that pre-existing work but i think where they've now where they are maybe a little bit more out on a limb here is exactly what we were talking about is, you know, this was the final tranche. It was the 11th hour wave of companies. And, and for Xiaomi, at least, it looks like pretty clear that there was just not much more than sort of the blanket. Well, it's a Chinese company. Therefore it's part of civil military fusion. Therefore we can put them on the list, which essentially means, and as we have said in the past, would mean you can basically include any Chinese technology company on this list if if right. that's the if that's the rule. Right, and I, and I I think you know one of the things that'll be interesting to see. I I was a little surprised in reading the the opinion at how um, uninvolved OFAC seemed to be in this process, particularly given that the designation came out a couple months after the executive order. Now. But the, the designations that took place before the executive order, there really was no role for OFAC. But once it created this Chinese military companies program, I would have thought that OFAC would have been more involved in the January, for example, 2021 designations. Um, and and from a from a process perspective, although I'm not trying to bless OFAC's process either, OFAC has been doing designations a long time and does have you know people who have been who who, who are you know, very experienced in putting together records that they can then go defend in court under the APA. I don't think the Department of Defense, at least in this context, really has any experience doing that. And it showed here. So I, I, I am curious to see, or I will be curious to see, you know, to the extent the Biden administration really continues and kind of incorporates this program, whether, the, whether they put together any process for listing these companies and whether it runs through OFAC or whether they build a separate process in the DOD. Yeah, I mean, I think this was something that we talked about early on, which is the way the executive order, the way 13959 is written, any, you know, it's sort of an either or, right? It could right. come from, the companies could come from the DOD or they could come from Treasury and they're supposed to consult with one another. But at the end of the day, it seems here pretty clear that this was a DOD only enterprise. And I agree with you whether or not there will be the need or the desire to, uh, harmonize processes or uh, create a unified process or, or what have you, I will say, I'm sure that the folks at defense will not be, would not be crazy about the notion of having to adhere to something that, you know, akin to what OFAC does. Um, but I, but I think that what's going to come out of this, if nothing else, is the folks at justice who are going to be the ones who have to go to court to defend this are going to say, look, if you, if you want to keep doing this, like we're going to, we're going to lose if we, if you're doing it this way, we're going to lose. And, you know, there just has to be, you have to give some thought to, again, what kind of evidentiary record you're putting together on this front. Are we actually, do you have facts that actually back up these conclusions or are you just sort of throwing out a couple of random facts and then sort of 
you know, stating a very perfunctory conclusion that doesn't have any tie because again, judge Contreras called them out for that, which is like, you, they're just throwing out a couple of things from the annual report and then stating, therefore the standard is met. And that's just not, no, no, nobody with any legal education is going to look at that and say that that passes muster. And, and I think he's now made clear and the DC court has made the DC district court has made clear that that's not going to fly. The other thing that was interesting about this uh, decision, I thought, and and really, you know, if I were at DOJ trying to defend this, I would suggest to the agencies is that because there's no real process for for listing, there's no real uh, inherently obvious delisting process, which means that this case could be brought without exhausting remedies. And so, so you know, if if it were if if it were if I were advising them, I'd tell them to get an administrative process in place so that the first the first bite at the apple would be in the administrative agency at the delisting stage um, so that you don't allow people to run into court this quickly and you don't have decisions that are this poorly reasoned that actually get in front of courts. Given the speed with which the DOD bureaucracy tends to move, I suspect that we'll be on Biden's second term or perhaps a, a new presidential administration altogether before that <laughs> that gets stood up. But in theory, yes, that would be probably the way to go. So uh, in any event, as I said, also, there is a, there was a joint status report that was filed just a few days after the ruling came down. And the government essentially just throws their hands up and says, we don't know what we're going to do yet. We don't know if we're going to, we don't, we can't, you know, we can't sort of uh, commit to a briefing schedule because we haven't decided yet what we're going to do. And I, I read that to mean that they may they may um, sort of just cut bait here and cut their losses and, and and Xiaomi may come off the list and they may not want to make more bad law for themselves and box themselves in further. I, I have a, a strong feeling that that's where they may land on this. So we will see over the course of the next couple of weeks, I would expect there'll be more on this and I'm sure we will cover this again uh, in the future, but for the time being, pretty fascinating. And, you know, again, I think also leaves us with the question, is this kind of a one-off that was just a unique, weird situation that came up because of the final days of the Trump administration trying to cram down as much sort of activity as they could? Or is this going to be a, you know, again, a roadmap to more challenges coming? And I, uh, you know, it, time will tell, but it, it could go I either say, way, I think. I I have familiar with a number of the listings at the end of the Trump administration, and a lot of them look to me to be very thin. I mean, they, there may be some there there. I'm not saying that there's not. And again, as you pointed out, Brian, we don't know what classified information some of the decision makers had access to. Here, it seems like there was none. But in some of these instances, maybe there's more than than is in the actual administrative Public, public administrative record, but but boy, the one the, a lot of the justifications that I've seen for some of the listings in the last two months of the Trump administration were were shockingly thin, even by you know the standards of some agencies that are, do not go out of their way to provide extensive justifications for their designations. Yeah, so we will we will just have to see. We will have to see. Uh, so with that, I think we'll leave Xiaomi behind for now, and we will go to at least at first, the latest round of Hong Kong-related designations, and then I think more broadly to the uh, diplomatic talks that occurred last week in Alaska. And so I'll kick it to Tim for that. So more China, more about China policy in the U.S. So 
as we've talked about many times now on the podcast, uh, last year, uh, the Trump administration and Congress created a program uh, that is housed in OFAC um, that was designed to protect Hong Kong's autonomy. And so there's a sanctions program in which uh, there's, pursuant to the executive order that created it, um, OFAC is allowed to designate uh, individuals or companies that are interfering with the autonomy of Hong Kong. Um, and in the first, I guess, um, six to eight months of that program, uh, there were 11 designations. Um, President Biden now, uh, in, in the past week, put on 24 new ones, uh, almost all of whom were members of the Chinese Communist Party leadership uh, in Beijing that had some involvement in um, essentially the Chinese takeover of, of Hong Kong and, and the reduction of autonomy that was agreed to when the British left. Uh, so, so that's a, a relatively big development. I mean, it really, it really was. I went and counted, and there's 35, you know, total designations, and 24 of them came last week. So that's a, a pretty big deal. I mean, none of them are that shocking, and I don't think that they'll have a big effect on, um, you know, these Chinese members of the Chinese leadership in the sense that cut, getting cut off from the U.S. financial system is not likely to affect them too much. Although, you know, I've read statements from some of the early designees about how they have to do everything in cash now um, because they, they can't really get access to the banks. So, um, but those were designees in, in Hong Kong. My, I suspect that the Chinese banks within you know mainland China are probably more willing to do mem- business with members of the, the leadership despite the designations. But in that sense, it was kind of symbolic, but it was it was also kind of a, a you know it played in with the the symbolism that took place around the same time when the U.S. and China held their first high-level dip, diplomatic talks in Anchorage, and you know at these diplomatic meetings, you know there might be some very polite you know brief kind of obscure mentions of issues in the public session, which is was, I think, only scheduled here for like five minutes, and it went on for an hour. Um, but at the at the initial session, I mean, the US made uh, comments about China's human rights record, and, and that prompted China to come back and make a long public statement about the US human rights record and about US you know, leadership in the world or lack thereof, according to the Chinese, in the sense that, um, you know, I think at least the sense of a, of a lot of the, the reporters who were there is that this was China trying to step into its own in terms of world leadership and trying to claim the mantle from kind of U.S. leadership of of kind of the, not just the free world, but in, in many ways, the, the, the world generally. Um, so it was interesting. I mean, I, I think that it set the tone. Now, was this posturing um, by both China and the U.S.? Because on the one hand, I think it's in the, you know, the Biden administration, one of the critiques they faced during the election was that they were going to be weak on China. So that they come in with a really strong statement about Chinese, Chinese human rights in order to, to show their strength. And then China, on the other hand, um, you know, has has kind of felt the sting from the Trump administration and is really hoping for to change the tune and to to walk into a Biden administration that kind of came in fighting was probably something that they wanted to push back against as well. I mean, it, it, it may well have been posturing. And my understanding from reading the, the press accounts was that once the session became closed, um, it was more collegial and there was more progress that was made. So maybe it was posturing. But it 
even if it was posturing, it's kind of interesting because these things normally don't happen at you know high level diplomatic meetings and certainly not for that length of time. Yeah, one of the fun things, as I alluded to at the open of the of the episode, is that there was accusations going back and forth about breaches of protocol and going on too long, and this is not how you welcome guests, and we we didn't think we were going to have to instruct the U.S. on how to um, the rules of how we engage at these things, and it was a lot of finger pointing, uh, sort of li- literal and figurative, that was going on in the early stages. Um, a few a few things that I'll that I'll mention. Um, if you look, if for anybody who's interested who hasn't already, I would encourage you to look at on the State Department website. There is basically a transcript of that whole exchange from that first public session that Tim's referring to, and it's pretty fascinating to look at uh, Secretary Blinken and National Security Advisor uh, Sullivan and the Chinese delegation kind of do their back and forth. And even have it, it's like it felt like being in court when you're sort of like, uh, Your Honor, may I have rebut- some rebuttal time or may I may I recross? You know, it's sort of they were kind of um, jumping, falling all over themselves to kind of have the last word here, which is which is pretty interesting. Um, I agree with Tim that the posturing and the sort of public messaging that uh, was trying to be created around this is, you know, a big part of what we what we have here. But interestingly when in terms of secretary blinken's initial comments he listed off in order xinjiang hong kong taiwan cyber attacks and economic coercion directed toward our allies as kind of the five big issues and these are obviously issues that we talk about all the time these are issues that are front and center in terms of the u.s sanctions policy and u.s trade policy that we have seen for the past few years and I think, as Tim said, to the extent that this was on the U.S. side, at least, meant to reassure folks that, you know, the Biden administration is not going to be soft on China. If anything, after this kind of an exchange, I, I you know, I don't know if it's not unreasonable to think that things might actually get worse before they get any better. That there, there might be harsher, more aggressive actions that are taken before we get any sort of you know, real uh, attempt to find some middle ground and maybe a, a common way forward. Now, uh, as Tim said, I think all, by all reports, it seems like things calmed down a bit once the, the press was out of the room, not surprisingly. But, uh, you know, at the same time, I think, uh, again, Secretary Blinken was very quick to say, look, I've had discussions with our allies in the region and all around the world, most of whom are they seem to be on our side with on this on this issue and they're sick and tired of china trying to bully them around and so you know you can sit there and pretend that china just minds their own business and and doesn't want anybody involved in their domestic affairs but that's really um just a completely disingenuous uh account of what what's really going on here which is again not inconsistent with the way that the us has been kind of frustrated by China over the last two decades or so, at least, uh, in terms of China sort of saying one thing and, and trying to present one, um, one uh, you know, profile publicly, but, but really acting in a very different manner sort of behind the scenes. So I, I think that my big takeaway, again, in light of everything that we've been talking about and everything we've been speculating about and a lot of people have been speculating about in terms of what's the future US-China, 
I think this just makes clear that there's going to be no easy or quick solutions here, not surprisingly, that things may be more, um, they may get worse before they get better. And But also, I, I think to, that, to the last point I mentioned about speaking with allies, I do think that the U.S. is going to work more actively to try to engage allies to kind of stand with them as opposed to just be you know, going it alone, which is, was the approach of the Trump administration was we're just going to spit in China's eye repeatedly on our own. And we don't really care if anybody comes with us, we're going to, this is what we're going to do. And, and that's, and we'll handle, and that's how we're going to handle our business with China. And here, I think clearly the desire as with many other aspects of trade and sanctions policy is going to be, let's, let's try to bring some, more leverage and more um, allies to bear to this fight or to this sort of struggle uh, so that we're not trying to do it all on our own. And I do think that that seems like a pretty clear message, which I think, quite frankly, is something China would they'd probably prefer if it was just us alone and not trying to persuade our our allies. So that that actually might be something for them to 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 be kind of recalibrating going forward. Yeah, I mean, I, it looks to me like, you know, if you read, um, you know, Secretary Blinken's uh, statements, a lot of them could have been said by Pompeo. I mean, like you could, if mm -hmm. it just said the Secretary of State, you, you wouldn't be surprised. I, I think we've been predicting this, you know, since well before the election, that that President Biden's China policy looks very similar at least in terms of the goals and the rhetoric to President Trump's China policy. The, the difference, I think, is that, um, and I think it's going to be a theme in, in sanctions as well, is that it, it may well be much more effective um, because uh, it, 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 he's not going it alone. Like when you have allies, they, it does actually change the calculus and it doesn't give China the opportunity to, to draw a wedge in between. I mean, one, one piece of evidence to kind of support that is at the very tail end of the Trump administration, China and the EU cut a trade deal. And, and China was kind of in a big hurry to get that done because, and now there's actually a, a bunch of uh, regret going on in the EU about that trade deal and it's becoming very unpopular in the EU. But I think China was in a big hurry to get that done because China anticipated the fact that once, once Biden took over, the ability of China to, to drive a wedge in between the US and the EU would be a lot less. And certainly on these sorts of kind of trade and China's role in the world type issues, the US is now kind of speaking of a, from a position of a multilateral coalition when in the Trump administration, it was the US standing alone and the, and the EU almost was reflexively rejecting everything that the US was doing in this area. Yeah, no, I, I agreed. So, <clears throat> the, you know, nothing, nothing, Truly, I guess, um, nothing really concrete that came out of this, but I think, again, directionally, what we can expect in the future. Obviously, of course, the, the Hong Kong designation is coming on the eve of these talks, a fairly provocative statement being made by the US. There were some subpoenas that were issued relating to the ICTS supply chain executive order to some Chinese companies that were publicly disclosed and uh, acknowledged just ahead of this. Again, another kind of another poke uh, in the eye to China, I think, in, in advance to, to sort of back up the idea that the U.S. is not going to be cowed by China and is going to continue to, you know, 
protect its interests aggressively and 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 act aggressively to do that. So, um, you know, but I think tonally interesting, an interesting first chapter to the to the discussions under the under the Biden administration, and we'll have to see where where we go from here, and whether there's um, you know what the next what the next stage looks like. I would I would expect that perhaps we'll hear more in the coming months about some second go round that might be contemplated at some point later this year, maybe. Um, but, uh, but I don't know, we, we will see. And that one would likely take place in China because you, typically you, you sort of trade back and forth. And so, um, you know, we'll see how that, how that goes and how, how the U S would be welcomed in, in China after, after the way that, um, we were perceived to be inhospitable hosts in, in Alaska. So, uh, so anyway, uh, we will leave that for now. Uh, obviously a topic we'll come back to, I'm sure many times over in the coming months. Um, so with that, let's, we're going to shift gears here pretty, uh, significantly. That's basically the end of our, that's most of, most of our China content for today. I think that's all of our China content for today. So let's go to Venezuela for topic number three. So there was an interesting, <clears throat> there was an interesting, um, sentence that was handed down in a criminal case in SDNY last week that we wanted to touch upon, uh, relating to, it was, uh, relates to, a. a an individual, a U.S. citizen, um, uh, a gentleman by the name of Victor Mones Coro, who goes by, uh, he's referred to as Mr. Mones in, in the court filings. Uh, and so Mr. Mones owned a flight charter company uh, and was accused and had been indicted a few years ago of uh, providing services to a number of SDNTs uh, who were designated under the Kingpin Act sanctions, one of whom is the former vice president of Venezuela, another of whom was a Supreme Court member in Venezuela, some other individuals as well. So these are not people that were actually sanctioned under the Venezuela, under the Venezuela program, but they are deeply have deep ties to the Maduro regime, and they were um, sanctioned under the Kingpin Act uh sanctions program. And he was accused, Mr. Monas was accused of essentially arranging for travel and flight services for these individuals. That was in some instances a direct aid to uh, Maduro and his uh, efforts to uh, fraudulently win uh, the most recent presidential election in Venezuela to move around cash from different destinations. There were trips uh, apparently or allegedly to to Turkey and Russia and, and places that, um, not surprisingly, are, are very high on the um, on the priority uh, in terms of the U.S. policing of what the Maduro regime is doing in terms of both sanctions evasion, money laundering, and all the other illicit activities that are going on to uh, keep his grip on on power. So, Mr. Mona's um, pled guilty and then apparently had to. That guilty plea was was withdrawn in part because there was some late Brady material that was disclosed by the government, a continued a continued issue uh, apparently in SDNY in these types of cases. But in any event, he he pled guilty again in January and then was just sentenced last week. What we wanted to talk about was um, so his his counsel put together uh, a pretty a pretty lengthy, compelling sentencing memo that does what you typically see in these cases, which is okay for this type of a sanctions violation in a criminal case, what is a comparable sentence? What's a comparable and appropriate sentence? The guideline range here 
um, I will say it was a it was a base level for those who don't know the U.S. sentencing guidelines. It's a you start with a national security offense at a 26 under the which it's is pretty very much. high, which is very high. That is that is a um, that is 63 to 78 months at a base. And here the government took the position that a four level enhancement was appropriate because he was a essentially an organizer of this criminal conspiracy. So then we're talking about a 30 uh, under the guidelines. So that is a that is a 97 to 121 month range. That's eight to 10 years in prison. That's a lengthy sentence. And um, and he was again, he was operating a charter service that providing flight services for these designated persons um, connected to the Venezuelan regime. And um, it, it seems, you know, it doesn't seem that he had any criminal history and all of the normal kind of, uh, you know, arguments were made about he's lived a good life. He made a terrible mistake. Uh, here are the comparable sentences that we typically see. And basically the probation came back and said, we think 30 months is an appropriate sentence. And his counsel only asked for a departure down to 28 months, which would have basically been um, time served, time more or served. less. Yeah, and he's because he's been incarcerated since he's since his indictment, and on on top of that, he he also contracted COVID while he was incarcerated, as so many have, and so they made the argument that that he's he's paid he's paid his due and he should be let out. Well. Um, Judge Hellerstein in SDNY disagreed, and he imposed a 55-month sentence on uh, Mr. Monas, which is, which is, again, it's below the guidelines, but it is almost twice what probation uh, recommended, and it is almost exactly double what the um, what the defendant's counsel was at requesting. And so, you know, I, let me throw to you, Tim, just to sort of just some thoughts here about. I should add that Judge Hellerstein, I believe, has the related cases um, recall that maduro and a number of his other um, associates were charged last year in a major sort of narcotics trafficking money laundering scheme and i believe judge hellerstein has all those cases assigned to him so this kind of got lumped in with those i think uh, that's not to be discounted here and um what are your reactions as somebody who's who's been through many, many sentencings over the years, has done sentencing in sanctions cases, you know, and, and to have a to have a sentence be handed down that that really departs pretty significantly from what um, both probation requested and from what would be typically the case in in comparable cases, which I think would have come out right around that 28 to 30 month range based on the the chart and the data that was collected by defense counsel. What is your what is your explanation for that? What are, what are your re, what's your reaction to that? So, these are these cases uh, present difficult sentencing issues, in my view. I mean, and and not necessarily uniquely difficult. Although I think what makes them difficult um, is is something that you mentioned at the beginning, Brian, which is that the guidelines are so high in these cases that the recommended sentence almost always comes in below that because I think there's a sense among the people who really know the case that the the guidelines are just too high and that the, the guideline sentence would be unfair. But that creates a dynamic at sentencing where essentially you've got a judge who 
thinks that he or she is being asked to be very, very lenient because they're looking at the guideline as the presumptive sentence. And then this request is essentially one for extreme leniency. And then they come to the case and they read the statements that the government has made in the process of the designations and in the process of creating a maximum pressure foreign policy against Maduro. And and look, I mean, you know, no, no government that is under sanctions is going to look very good. And I think you can certainly make the case that the Maduro government is especially bad. And so somebody who is accused of um, or convicted of uh, doing things to help the Maduro administration and then is coming in and or the Maduro regime and, and then is coming in and asking for what I think a judge can view as extreme leniency when they're asking for half the sentence that the guidelines would recommend. Um, it is, even when you have the government recommendation that was similar, it, you know, it's a crapshoot because the, I've I've had it happen in, in some of my cases where you've really got judges that get their backs up against what they view as a, a extremely too lenient recommendation, and and you really have to account for that when you're doing these sentencings. I, I say it's unique. It is unique because I think this, these guidelines are especially high, but it's not completely unique because I think the federal guidelines, sentencing guidelines generally are way too high. And so you face that dynamic in a lot of cases where everybody sees what the fair sentence is. It's a lot lower than the guidelines, but what the dynamic that you have is that you're essentially fighting to get a sentence that is really the right sentence, but you're fighting from a presumption that it's you know way too lenient. Yeah, I, I will say just a couple of additional comments on that. So I think, again, as I started by saying the the idea that national security offenses are uh, you you start at such a high base level under the guidelines is this this goes to what we talk about all the time, which is that the the national security aspects of everything we discuss and that we talk about are so paramount. And I think that the guidelines, perhaps you can disagree that that is maybe an over estimation of that from a sentencing perspective, but it is clear that that is meant to acknowledge the that unique place that those considerations take in our in our system, whether it be administrative or criminal, right? And it's baked in there. But to Tim's point, obviously now with the guidelines being completely, um, you know, uh, sort of advisory and not mandatory as they were, you know, treated for for a number of years, it just creates a strange dynamic. I think in all of the cases that I ever saw through to sentencing when I was at DOJ, I I think there was maybe only one example that I can think of where we got a guideline sentence. And that was in a, there was a sort of particularly egregious uh, set of conduct that we that we were dealing with in that case. Uh, and uh, had, a, had a defendant who was not, um, who was not really accepting responsibility for what he had done. But in all other cases, it is like Tim said, there's kind of an awkward, dance that's being done because oftentimes the prosecutors and I was in this position where we look at the guidelines and based on the circumstances, comparable case law, maybe some co maybe cooperation, if that's a, if that's in, in effect, acceptance of responsibility, whatever the case may be, um, we were essentially in agreement that it should be below guideline, right? And, and that this is, um, or that we're not, or that we have to kind of Take our, we have to basically throw our hands up and sort of not object to whatever the defense is um, advocating for, which is typically the way that this works, is that the US, the government usually just doesn't, they, 
they take a position on the on the range, but then they don't usually take a position on the sentence unless um, you know unless there's a you know a real sharp disagreement uh, with the defense as to how things are being characterized or what the what the appropriate answer is. So it, it is it's just something that I sort of highlight because we don't we haven't I don't know that we've had a real sentencing discussion in quite some time, and this is something that we certainly do worry about in the in the abstract with our clients that are involved in criminal matters but um you know to have one that gets all the way through and gets sort of uh broken out like this to to see sort of an example is is noteworthy and i think it's just something to keep to bear in mind that as tim said you are you're fighting a bit of an uphill battle in some of these cases when you when you have the dynamics of the national security considerations the high guideline range and judges who are in some cases going to be more than happy slash feel obligated to depart from what it, whatever it is that the, both the government and the defense are, are you know, pleading with them to do. So it is, it is something to bear in mind and, and it is a real, um, it is a real issue in these cases. It's what these, makes these cases the most tricky, I think, is, yeah. the, is, this, is just that you're looking at such a presumptively high sentence. And even in circumstances where, you know, the prosecutor agrees that it's too high, you're still not safe. There's no guarantee. Yep, yeah. No guarantee. So yeah, that's absolutely right. So in any event, we wanted to highlight that because we thought that was an interesting sort of recent case study on that front. Uh, and with that, let's go to our last topic, which I lied. There is going to be a little bit of China talk in here, but uh, let's talk about uh, election interference and the findings that were just released a few days ago on that. I'll kick that to Tim. So in March of 2021, um, the intelligence agencies re released reports, and I, I'm really going to focus on the, the March 10th report from the National Intelligence Council, although um, DOJ and Homeland Secu Security released similar reports. Um, but they, they really wanted to took a look at uh, foreign interference in the U.S. elections in, in the 2020 U.S. elections. And they made a number of judgments, most of which uh, represented the you know the, the unanimous consensus of the the um, intelligence community. One of which, the the one that related to China, there was some dispute on it. Um, but you know the the judgment was basically that nobody, uh, Russia, Iran, um, or China, um, actually was able to interfere with the way that the election results were calculated. So essentially, they did not get into the voting process, um, didn't affect voter registration, casting ballots, vote tabulation, reporting results. Um, but there was a judgment that, uh, and, and they named in the, at least in the intelligence report that I'm focusing on, they named President Putin by name. Um, and and then he, and said that he specifically authorized uh, the Russian governmental organizations to uh, conduct a number of influence operations. They were aimed, in the intelligence community's view, at denigrating President Biden's candidacy and the Democratic Party, supporting former President Trump, um, and undermining public confidence in the electoral process. So so essentially. Um, a, 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 what what I think you might call a disinformation campaign um, that was authorized specifically by by President Putin. The intelligence community did see that that, that or did not see any of the sorts of cyber efforts that uh, apparently took place in 2016, um, but that uh, essentially what what the intelligence community saw was that uh, 
the Russian intelligence agencies use pro proxies to push influence narratives. So um, including uh, essentially flooding the airwaves with misleading or unsubstantiated, unsubstantiated allegations against President Biden. Uh, there, there was another judgment about Iran. Um, there was an assessment that Iran carried out a, a covert influence campaign that was designed to, to undercut former President Trump, um, but that did not uh, aim to directly promote, uh, you know, his rival, uh, you know, uh, now President Biden. Um, they they also assessed that uh, this was authorized by Supreme Leader of Iran, uh, Khamenei, and that he authorized this campaign. Um, I, I, you know, and the, the assessments that I read, the, this the Iranian efforts were not particularly effective, but that there were efforts. I think the judgment that got the most press was the assessment that China didn't deploy interference efforts and considered, um, but did not deploy influence efforts to affect the outcome of the election. The intelligence community expressed high confidence in this judgment. Essentially, the finding was that China thought about it, but decided that it wasn't worth the risk of getting caught. Um, and so, and and felt like no matter who won the election, that it could use whatever the tools, the lawful tools that were available. Um, essentially, you know, counter counter economic measures and and lobbying and and working kind of directly to influence um, world opinion on this. And so, the the assessment was that that did not occur. Although there was a dissent that was. Um, that was registered by the the intelligence office for cyber um they they that office believed that china took some steps to try and undermine um former president trump's re-election um i think those that office uh it was involved in some uh public statements that were made by the trump administration back in august and, and september in which uh, there were, the, I, I believe, Secretary Pompeo and, and others actually stated on the record that that, that the intelligence services had had um, found that China was engaging in these sorts of efforts and that there was plenty of evidence of that. So I think that that that, that evidence was likely coming out of the NIO for cyber, but the rest of the intelligence community dis disagreed and had high confidence in that judgment. And then the intelligence community looked and saw that a, a range of other actors took some steps, Hezbollah, Cuba, Venezuela, to influence the election, but these were small and, and not particularly particularly effective. So interesting findings about cyber and, and important from a sanctions perspective because of the cyber, the cyber sanctions programs that exist. And we'll see if, if any of these findings result in, um, in designations from OFAC. Yeah, the, the, Reporting on this is clearly pointing toward, and we've talked. We talked about this last time when we spoke about the Navalny-related sanctions imposed on Russia. That under the foreign election interference EO and under the cyber EO, we are most likely going to see a wave of designations targeting Russia, certainly, and. Uh, also likely Iran, because yes. uh, even though they were sort of, they were trying to meddle in different directions, they were both trying to meddle. Uh, <clears throat> and and so it, most of the, the statements that are coming out about this, uh, it, you know, the conjecture is that it may even be this week. By the time this is even posted, there's, it's possible we may have our first wave of designations there. Other indications are certainly that there were going to be additional steps that the U.S. may be taking to uh, respond to this, uh, inter these interference attempts. So, you know, 
again, that that may or may not be public, but I, I think we're we're certainly expecting there's going to be some action here in the coming days, and so I think this this is obviously was coordinated to lay the groundwork for that, and and now I think we're going to see that in all likelihood very soon. But I do think just to close the loop on one thing that Tim highlighted, you know, the fact that last summer and fall we had on the record statements from the attorney general, the director of national intelligence, the national security advisor, among others, who were saying, no, China is trying to interfere with our election. And now this report seems to just flatly just, you know, rebut that and make clear that that was not the case with the with the exception of the, the minor dissent, perhaps, on that front um, is, you know, not, I guess not that surprising considering that, um, we uh, have been, uh, we were well aware of the struggle that was going on within the administration between the intelligence agencies and the professional intelligence collectors and the policymakers. And the fact that if intelligence did not line up with, with um, policy narratives, that they were either being disregarded or twisted to, uh, to their, to their, meet their, uh, their goals, and that appears to be what was going on here, um, to to take some shots at China when perhaps that was not warranted in this in this particular instance, even even if there may have been many other causes to do that. So, and also the idea that Venezuela, Cuba, and others were somehow manipulating the voting machines, you know, the the basis for the all you know the uh, the lawsuits and other things that we saw late last year, completely debunked by this report. Also, some some reference in here to U.S. officials and, and others close to President Trump, um, you know, some some names that are probably familiar to, to those who listen to this, who, who, who were potentially being actively used to perpetrate the Russian narratives in particular. Uh, I think we will probably see more on that in the in the coming uh, days and months. And perhaps even, uh, you know, there's some some suggestion that there may be ongoing uh, ongoing investigations going on with respect to some of those individuals, and so we will we will have to keep our eye on that. But but I think the main takeaway for now, um, election interference related sanctions are coming, and they could be they again they could be in effect by the time we uh, this posts uh, later this week, and uh, you know, and then we will have to see what what comes of that uh and what may what follow-on steps there may be because uh you know i don't think there's any i don't think there's any indication that that alone will be enough to deter russia certainly or even iran um so we'll be interesting if this is sort of the first act what what comes next in that front yeah i mean i you know i think it's an ongoing issue it seems like from the reports that the there was really consensus that the attempts to interfere in the 2020 election were fewer and and less successful less effective in the 2016 election yes i mean there there wasn't a big hack of one of the sides and then a selective release of information is the during the campaign so it it definitely seemed like that from the outside but this is confirmation from kind of inside the intelligence agencies of what that it seemed to be happening in 2020. yeah no agreed so uh, again, we will we'll stay tuned because there's more there's more coming on that front, um, and so watch for that in the coming days. Uh, with that, I think that's the end of the main portion, and we will pause for the lightning round sound effect, and we will jump into the lightning round. We're going to stick with Russia, and we're going to go to one of our favorite topics, 
uh, Nord Stream 2. So for those who were have not been following this, uh, just a few days ago, the new um, head of the CIA was confirmed by the Senate. Um, that may not seem, you may ask yourself, why does that have anything to do with Nord Stream 2? Well, that has to do with Nord Stream 2 because reportedly, Senator Ted Cruz had put a hold on um, Director Burns' nomination, uh, now Director Burns' nomination, unless or until there were some action taken or some assurances taken that the existing Nord Stream 2 sanctions were going to actually be implemented uh, and enforced um, <clears throat> as written. And we've talked about this a lot with PISA and the follow-on changes that have come just in the most recently in the NDAA. Uh, and to date, there has not been really much, if any, enforcement at all with the, ex with the exception of the, the, the one or two designations that came on the, at the very end of the Trump administration um, relating to the Russian vessel that was sanctioned. Uh, and so now what we saw was last week, Secretary Blinken made a statement, a public statement saying, we are watching and you are on, you are on notice at world actors that if you were involved in Nord Stream 2, we're, we may be coming for you. And that was, you know, a very short, like two paragraph statement that came out, I think the day before the Alaska talks started. And so the speculation is that, um, in this sort of quid pro quo to get director Burns, uh, through, uh, state department and others in the administration have promised that they are going to enforce the Nord Stream 2 sanctions. There are reportedly a number of different actors, uh, involved in various aspects of the project that are now under, uh, closer scrutiny, perhaps, for potential sanctions. And the question I want to ask to you, Tim, is we've talked a lot about this, that if this, if, if the U.S. goes hard on Nord Stream 2, this is going to really create a rift with Germany. And I think in line with the strategy that uh, President Biden is trying to deploy, which is to rebuild bridges with allies, and Germany is a critical one, obviously, in Europe, what do we think the chances are that uh, there are going to be additional designations and what do we think um, what do we think the what do we think the impact of that will be not just on the project but on the relationship with Germany is there a way is there sort of an elegant solution here where maybe some designations could be dropped but they will they will be more symbolic than anything and the 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 pipeline project will continue on because as we've talked about before they're very far along and it's hard to see at this point how this can really be, how this can really be stopped using the existing authorities that are at our disposal. Yeah, I mean, so, so this is a hard one for the Biden administration because on the one hand, I think they've already made it pretty clear that they are going to be tougher on Russia than the Trump administration, and this is one where kind of it's not. Nord Stream two is something that Russia has just plowed through despite sanctions that you know, started in 2017 and kind of were increased in 2019 and 2020. They've really been very ineffective, um, not particularly enforced by the Trump administration, which is part of the ineffectiveness. From that, from the tough on Russia perspective, you'd think that Biden would come in and, and issue the sort of warnings that are happening right now, um, even without kind of having Senator Cruz holding them hostage in order to do so, which is what he, he apparently did to, to um, Director Burns's nomination was hold it basically until um, the Biden administration 
leveled these warnings to to anybody working on Nord Stream 2. So so that's one take on it. And so that should be easy. Tough on Russia, Nord Stream 2 sanctions, start ramping it up. The problem is that to really make those sanctions effective, you'd need to uh, impose them on probably German companies, but but certainly EU companies, because that's where the pipeline is running straight into the EU. And so, you know, you've got Danish companies working on it. You've got, you know, some of the Nordic companies that are working on it because it's coming through um, the Baltic to, you know, Northern Germany. that will clash with the idea that we're going to be friendly with the allies, much more friendly than the Trump administration was going to be with the allies. And it it will ruffle some feathers. I mean, it really is a hard issue because the, you know, the thinking here is that, um, you know, this is necessary not only to deter Russia, but to protect Ukraine. So that's kind of another issue lurking in the background, because as I understand it, the real concern with respect to Ukraine is that most of the gas that comes to Europe now from Russia runs through Ukraine, which makes Russia dependent upon Ukraine and kind of moderates Russian behavior with respect to Ukraine, because if it, you know, goes into an all-out war with Ukraine, there's the risk that Russian gas couldn't be sold into Europe. And so you've got the Biden administration, kind of the pro-Ukraine side of the Biden administration and the pro-Europe side of the Biden administration and the anti-Russia side, and they're all kind of leading to different to different outcomes. And, and I think that that is what is going to make this a mess. And so you're going to see, um, you know, some harsh warnings and maybe some sanctions on, on EU companies, but, but, but presumably accompanied by lots of backroom diplomacy to try and soften the effect of that and really to try and not go too far so that we don't get too out far crosswise with Germany and some of the other EU allies that, that uh, want Nord Stream 2 to happen. Yeah, so just a couple of quick thoughts and questions to throw out there just for, for consideration. So, you know, by most accounts, a lot of Western companies who might have had some role in the project have kind of already abandoned the project. So to the extent that there was deterrent effect that was going to happen, I think that's largely happened. I don't know that there is much more to deter at this point. I mean, perhaps this latest warning from Secretary Blinken might have a slightly more deterrent effect if that gets the attention of somebody else who was still committed to the project. But I think most people have sort of walked away who were going to walk away. So that's number one. Number two, um, you know, as we talk about a lot, sanctions have become just the favored tool to throw at anything we don't like anywhere around the world. And the question of what are we really accomplishing here, I think is one that has to be asked here, which as we've talked about, if it's, if it, if the assessment is that it's too late to really stop the project, are we going to burn bridges with Germany and other close allies to, to throw, you know, three or four or five or six companies on, on the list who were involved in the project? Is that is that what we're going to do? I I don't know. I have a I I suspect that this administration is going to be very very leery of that kind of self defeating action if it's if it's if it's assessed to be kind of all for naught. So I think th- those questions and that assessment is got to be going on right now. And what are we really going to accomplish if we impose more san- if we impose some sanctions right now? Um, and then, and what's the cost to our, to our relationships with Germany and others? And, and I think that, that at the end of the day is the real question is what, what benefit can, what benefit can we really have here beyond a symbolic benefit and beyond the knowledge that Russia may be able to claim some sort of victory 
if they get the pipeline done. And but to the to, then again, it's sort of the victory equals what exactly, and how 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 much influence does that actually give them over Europe's energy supply, and how much you know? I've read articles that suggest that Europe has been diversifying their energy supply away from Russia for consistently for the past twenty years. So this is not the same. This is not the same level of problem it might have been in the '90s, right? And and um, I think that has to weigh as well. So under, understanding that this is on a symbolic level, on a sort of who's going to blink chicken, you know, sort of game of chicken, there's a lot at stake here. But in terms of the substance of all this, what does it amount to? And is the U.S. prepared to alienate allies to throw a handful of companies on, on the list? And maybe there are some companies that they can safely put on the list that aren't going to alienate anybody because they're not German companies or they're not Danish companies. Um, so I don't know, right. but we'll, but we'll have to see. But, they, but will those be what it's all going to come down right? to. I mean, yeah. And, and the, the answer is like, maybe the answer is probably not, but right. maybe that's, a, maybe it's enough to be like, well, we tried and we tried right. with these companies and, you know, we'll, so we'll see, we'll see. Cause I think there'll be a lot more that kind of flares up on this over the next few months during what is, you know, expected to be the kind of final stretch of the project. We'll see. If it can really be derailed, or or if this is if we're just kind of spinning our wheels here, so so we we will see. Uh, with that, let's go to the last lightning round topic, which is um, sadly back to Burma and more more U.S. Uh, actions uh, taken with uh, respect to the post coup uh, Myanmar government. I'll throw that to Tim. Right. So you know, back in January, right as the Biden administration was coming into office. There was a coup in in Myanmar. The military took over, and uh, soon afterwards, um, President Biden uh, started his first sanctions program, which was essentially a resumption of the the Burmese sanctions that had been lifted back in 2017. Now they weren't exactly the same program. It was a new executive order, um, and it started in a limited way, where uh, a number of the Burmese generals who participated in the coup were placed onto the SDN list, along with some companies involving those generals. Um, last week, uh, actually on March 19th, the BI, or, 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 no, March 4th, um, BIS um, ramped the up the, the Burmese sanctions a bit by imposing some new export control um, export controls on Burma, adding some entities to the entity list that were connected to the coup. Um, the export controls are worth talking about quickly. Uh, one is that that when uh, the sanctions were lifted on on Burma uh, back in 2017, Burma was moved to country group B, which is a country group where there are fewer um, licensing restrictions, more license exceptions that apply to uh, products that might otherwise uh, uh, require a license. They were now moved back to country group D1 uh, on March 4th as a result of the new BIS actions. And so that creates more licensing requirements to send items to Burma than existed before. That's one aspect of the new changes. The other one is, I think, more interesting than that um, because it, it actually made Burma subject to the military end use and military end user restrictions um, that we've talked about quite a bit because they were, you know, ramped up to include China in terms of the military end user restrictions last summer. So it's 744.21 of uh, of Title 15 of the CFR. 
And and so that one, um, you know, now it's Burma and Russia and Venezuela and China that are subject to these restrictions on sending products that are contained in Supplement 7. So it's not all products that are subject to the EAR, but it, only those in the supplement. But there's quite a few products in the supplement now in, in, in Supplement 7. So, so for those products, now if you're sending to Burma or you're exporting to Burma, you have to determine whether or not your, your end user is a military end user or the end use of the product is going to be a military end use and if it is then you you need a license require or you need a license and uh the license is subject to a presumption of denial so so you're probably not going to get it now as a practical matter it's not clear to me that there are a ton of products that are going to be affected by this because U.S. exports to Burma are just not that um, substantial. But but to the extent that you know your company uh, is exporting to Burma currently, this is a big hurdle if if your product is on Supplement Seven because the due, the level of due diligence, at least in the China context, which is where I'm most familiar with it, in the Russia context a little bit. Um, the level of due diligence that's required to determine whether or not an end user is a military end user is quite substantial. You really have to get into the weeds to determine kind of their the connection to the military and whether they've ever, ever done work for the military and if so, how much. And it's 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 quite quite um, an extensive burden if you if you run into the issue with respect to Burma. So if you're exporting goods there that are on Supplement Seven. Um, you know, and subject to the EAR, this is a, a big new hurdle that you, you're going to need to think about. Yeah, just a couple of quick comments so related to that. The, they, the rule also acknowledges that there may be some MEU list additions that are Burma focused in the future uh, that would that would play into that. I think this is really just my to my mind, this is just an it's um, it's consistent with sort of the incremental approach that we have seen thus far from the Biden administration relating to Burma. There was the executive order that's issued about 10 days after the coup on February 10, EO 14014, which is the standing up of the restanding up of the Burma sanctions program. This is really kind of harmonizing the export control rules consistent with uh, sort of the policy goals and, and, the, and the values and concerns that are covered by that executive order in many ways. Uh, and so, you know, there's room, as Tim said, there's, and as we've now both said, I think there's room that this could be expanded. This could be made even more restrictive in the future. But I think in terms of um, just the export control side of the house, this is this is kind of harmonizing things to uh, align with where uh, U.S. policy is on this. And, and I think as, as things um, continue to unfold, and, and again, it, it, things continue to look fairly dire in in Burma at the moment. Nothing, no sign that there is um, any real end in sight or any path forward at the moment in a in a sort of peaceful, constructive way. Uh, in the in the post coup uh, Burma, I would expect that we may see more uh, incremental moves in this regard, whether from OFAC or BIS or both. Uh, to deal with uh, that situation and to reflect that in in our in our trade policy in our in our export policy. So, um, so that's just really just a quick one we wanted to flag, but but I think one that is notable nevertheless. Um, so with that, I think we are done for this episode. We're done for this week. Um, we uh, thank everyone again for for joining us on the latest episode of Embargoed. I think we are 
planning to have um, guests on again in the not too distant future. I'm not sure if it'll be the next episode or perhaps two episodes from now, but we have we are in some preliminary talks with some folks to join us so that we can have a, uh, a another guest um, appearance or two to talk about um, certain pockets of activity in the world, some of which we have talked about today uh, that we will talk about in more depth. Um, but um, I think uh, for now, our plan would be we'll be back in two weeks with another sort of normal episode. And um, uh, until then, we uh, we keep our fingers crossed. No, Again, no more coups, no more uh, earth shattering events in the next couple of weeks. And uh, and we will, um, we're, again, we're happy spring is here. We're cautiously optimistic despite all of the um, despite all the serious issues that we just discussed and that we continue to wrestle with every day. Um, and so with that, we, we wish everybody uh, stay well, get your vaccines, keep your masks on, and stay sanctions-free. Stay sanctions-free and enjoy the return to normalcy. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. 